Right, okay, so we are recording. Uh, so thank you for all joining me uh, to the Evolution Nordics podcast. Uh, my name's Chris Bennett, um, and I'm the Nordics business manager here at Evolution, and I connect uh, talented freelancers to pioneering tech companies. That's my bit. So on the panel today, I'm very, very excited. We have got um, four incredible individuals. Um, so let's go through and uh, have some introductions. So first of all, Claire. Okay, so hello, my name is Claire Sullivan and I am a machine learning engineer at GitHub where I do a lot of work in uh, graphs and um, looking at our user communities, and I also do um, some machine learning on code. Perfect. Uh, Jim? Hey, Chris. Yarg here to year, Mark. Come on. No, I'm, I, that's the limit of my Nordics, I'm afraid. Hello, <laughs> my name's Jim Weber, and uh, I'm near for Jay's chief scientist. I'm a, a computer scientist by trade and have a strong research uh, interest in systems. Uh, particularly building graph databases, which seem like a very useful bit of kit for analyzing social networks. Perfect. And Errol? Yes, uh, Errol Kohlmeister. I am the product area lead engineer for AI in H&M Group. So basically, I'm responsible for all the engineering team and data science team that work on all the interesting topics we work with at H&M. Perfect. And when? Yeah. Uh, my name is Wen Zhou. I'm a senior machine learning engineer and a machine learning manager at Fishbrain. Uh, before I worked in industry, I was an associate professor working with machine learning and a complex network. I was also worked at Northwestern University in Northwestern uh, Institute of Complex Systems. So, uh, so I, I, the, the topics I was interested uh, related to complex network is the uh, algorithm of the link prediction, the influencer identification, the, the methods of spammer detection based on social network, and the recommendation based on complex network. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Four lovely introductions. So thank you much for that. Okay. So as I mentioned, we've got four topics of conversation around the, the main topic of how AI and machine learning can utilize your social network. So uh, I'm going to pick on Jim first. Uh, Jim's question is, how does the panel store their social network that their machine learning models use? So Jim, give us some context behind the question and then we'll go to the panel. So oh, hardware. Sorry, so, we couldn't um, hear you there. <laughs> <laughs> I've carefully got a hardware button so I can uh, mute any background noise. And as a software person, I forget to press it. Um, so I'm really interested in how people store graphs. Of course, it's my day job uh, to help people store and query graphs. But uh, much to my you know, disappointment, not everyone uses uh, Neo4j to store and query their graphs. So I'm wondering how other people are storing their and querying their graphs, their social graphs. And I guess really I want to learn how I can improve Neo4j, so you'll start using that. <laughs> okay, so I think, um, when you kick us off. Well, well, okay, literally, the network now is stored in the memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, currently our network data can be, uh, I, we actually pull the network data from our production uh, data and it's stored in the production database. 
and uh, backed up in Google BigQuery, which will be well, the data will be backed up every 24 hours. And the data is now in a different table. We have the user data. We have to merge them together before we actually can build the network. So the, 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 we have the user information in the user table. We have the connection. Uh, we have the connection stored in the following table, which has the user ID and their follower ID. And then we also have the, the user's location information uh, while they register, they will put into their, put, put, put the location uh, information. And this is important for us because we have uh, 10 million users. We cannot build a network with 10 million users. So we use their location to split the, 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 the network into sub network. And so we could build a network and it could calculate things on top of that. So you have a data wrangling phase then, and then you build an in-memory graph to solve your problem and you refresh it periodically. I think, yeah. I think that makes a bunch of sense. It seems a, a reasonably common pattern. Yeah. And maybe I can follow up on uh, just on my side. Uh, back in the days, uh, it's not back in the days, it's just a few years back, because today at H&M we don't do much uh, graph wrangling. Uh, but, but I remember when I couldn't code uh, in, in Python and we had to use Scala, because basically when when I was at Vodafone, we were doing a lot of processing on graphs and trying to detect networks, etc. Uh, and then we used graphics, uh, of course, on Spark because we needed to do distributed computing. So everything we wrote out was in Scala and it was stored to disk, basically. So I think the computational pattern that we used was very similar to the one you just described, Ben. Uh, and I do think we looked at Neo4j and we thought the technology was, was quite good. Uh, and especially the syntax around how to query uh, was what we found very interesting. Uh, but as uh, Ben said, we sort it in memory and then to disk. So obviously there's a bit of lag of getting it from this into memory, processing it and getting your conclusions out. Uh, Errol, if I might, I, I know this is cheeky of me, but I'm, I'm interest, interested by the experience you had with distributed graph processing. Uh, yes. I, my, my background is high performance computing. And I've always found that if I could avoid distributing things, everything's so much simpler and faster. Was, was that your experience when you were doing graph processing or did you get benefit from being able to distribute the computation? Uh, well, I mean, you have to look on the sizes that we did. I don't think we even actually looked at non-distributed computing at that time, uh, because basically the sizes at Vodafone were just too huge. Uh, I think we had a, uh, we were looking at kind of graphs and interactions and networks and how the customers were interacting. So we had hundreds of millions of customers and interactions and events. So looking at everything else than distributed computing wasn't really on the table. Uh, when we started dividing different technologies. But I would agree with you, at least when I was doing a lot of uh, distributed computing in early days of Spark, uh, I hated it because <laughs> it always fell. Uh, I got so many errors from time to time. You spent more time on just uh, looking through the logs for errors than actually writing code for it. So I guess I'm up next. <clears throat> um, so I have a... Uh... I think I have a different path at GitHub for looking at graphs. We, our end goal really is to get um, our graphs in true data science mode and machine learning. And so I've been advocating for graph work since I got to GitHub a little more than three years ago, and it's been a process. So, um, you know, I find that data scientists are more comfortable with databases that they know, such as SQL type SQL variants, um, Hive, things like this. And so we started um, trying to get people's attention. Just, I, I was using Spark. I was using GraphFrames and GraphX. And um, 
there's there's a I think there's a fear factor with Spark, and so we um, we moved over to just doing uh, Python queries to SQL um, and establishing a graph that way. And to process that, I was using NetworkX, and then we moved from NetworkX to um, some of the uh, Rapids AI NVIDIA work um, using GPUs. So we used, um, they, they call it QGraph. And um, as, as things matured in our understanding at GitHub, and not to puff up Neo4j, but we, we evaluated a bunch of different graph options, and we did purchase an enterprise license with Neo4j, and uh, yes, um, and I've been I, I've been playing with Neo4j for some time, but this was you know finally the first time that we were able to start doing a lot of computation that was just difficult for us in any of the other platforms, just due to the size of the graphs. Uh, Claire, can I ask, are you using the the graph data science library part of Neo4j? I am. Um, I think we were one of the first enterprise customers to really go that route. And I recently wrote a blog post on it. I, you know, again, I'm not trying to, you know, do some sort of sales pitch or anything like that. But, but the Graph Data Science Library has really enabled a lot of our work. Um, I, and I wrote a blog post on this. <clears throat> the, the previous algorithm to that was our, the previous library was the Graph Algorithms Library. Um, GDS, though, has it has a lot of really nice features for us. So so I've personally been very happy. I, I, my, my GDS team are going to be really, really happy to hear that. And, and <laughs> not a sales pitch whatsoever, but I'm going to pass that on. So transitively through the social graph, you, they, they're going to get a lot of love from you. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Jim, do you feel like um, your question has been answered? I, I, I do. Thank you all for, for, uh, for your insights. That was really good to hear. I, even for those of you that are still doing in-memory graphs, that means there's, there's still space for me to uh, make you win as happy as Claire is, perhaps. <laughs> I, I think I'm more than happy to be convinced. Uh, I do think it's a very interesting topic. I just remember all the pains I had. And I mean, obviously, getting new solutions is what we're all aiming to do. That, that's it, great. Yeah, I feel like I should have brought a salesperson onto the call now. And, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I should be charging commission, Jim. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I, wish, I, wish. I tried a nail for you too. So one of my students, he she went to Intel to do her intern. So she tried a nail for you there, and she came back, told me, "Oh, this is so so convenient." I really wish I was wearing like the corporate T-shirt now. I feel, I feel like I've missed an opportunity. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's a brilliant start. Um, okay, next question. We'll go with Wen's question. Um, I know Wen, uh, again, is very passionate about this subject. Um, what are the rest of the panel's thoughts around mining the user's social network? So, Wen, give, give us some context about um, why you asked this question. Well, yeah, so since Fishbrain is a vertical social network, uh, com, uh, social, yeah, we, we it's a vertical social network, and we also we are a tool for the for the anglers to use to 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 to, uh, to pursuing their fishing dream. But uh, but I'm super. Ha I, I I was like super interested because uh, I was working on uh, like the theory on complex network for so long, and now I finally get to get to the real data, <laughs> the real data. But as we all know that there are many things we can do around mining the social network. 
what uh, what are the feasible things we can do around around mining the user's social social network? On Siri, we have a lot of things we can do, right? <laughs> so uh, on one hand, I'm super excited. There are so many things we can do, but. On the other hand, I also know, given there are a lot of uh, like uh, third-party services, open-source APIs that we should consider. We shouldn't build things from scratch. And uh, yeah, so I uh, wish. Yeah, so I, I just wondering what 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 those things you do to mine your social network. If I could, I, I have some um, some thoughts on the. Uh just the purposes of mining social data and whether it's a good thing to mine social data. And um, I didn't say this in the beginning, but I'm coming to you from the United States where, you know, it really has been a double-edged sword what has been happening with social media. Um, you know, it's been in the news a ton about how um, the elections here in the United States have been influenced by this. And um, I, I think that there's a lot of care that needs to be taken when we think about mining this, the, the European Union has a very different view of internet security than the United States does, courtesy of GDPR, um, all of the opt-in requirements rather than in the United States, it just gets thrown at you and you have no way to be in or out of the information. So the, um, I, I think the use of social media data can be a good thing. And um, I look at certain emergency response things. There's certainly a lot of great things happening um, around the, the COVID situation around the world. But coming from the United States, most of what we're hearing right now about mining social media has been pretty negative. Okay. Jim? I think graphs present uh, an enormous opportunity and an enormous challenge. I think the double-edged sword that Claire brought up is absolutely correct. Um, you know, I think it was William Gibson, the famous science fiction author, who wrote in one of his recent works that a small town in America was Facebooked off the planet. And uh, imagine that being able to cauterize a graph in such a way to project an image that a, that a town had been destroyed when the inhabitants were living there quite peaceably, albeit in isolation. And I do see this. You, 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 we talk about the US. It's obviously been the most uh, febrile use of social networks, I think, in, in recent history. But none, none of us are immune from it. I, I live in the UK, which is a, a mini US in many ways, both in terms of social media and the kind of febrile political environment. And I think the ability of a, of a social graph to, uh, to uh, harness a concept and then amplify it to susceptible people, and I don't mean susceptible in a negative way, but receptive people, uh, for both good and bad, uh, is there. Uh, and I think we haven't yet established the ethics of graphs. Like graph theory is 300 years old, but it's a piece of maths, right? It's a piece of maths and some, in my world, algorithms written by people with difficult Dutch names. That, that's graph theory. And it's completely uh, uncaring about you know, the actual humans that are involved in the graph, right? I mean, it, it was brought up to minimize some rich bloke's walk so he didn't have to cross it uh, and not, you know, uh, an excessive number of bridges. So we find ourselves here in the 21st century with this, you know, incredible set of mathematics and algorithms and analytical devices uh, 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 that we can use, coupled with now a bunch of machine learning techniques that are going to amplify the power of graphs. And I don't think we've got a good ethical framework for it. Um, for example, um, you know, if I look at the popular social networks, if I guess Facebook is a, is a hugely popular social network, as an individual, I can choose a bunch of privacy settings that might make me more or less engaged with the graph from my point of view. 
But here I am on this call surrounded by graph theoreticians. And the thing that we all know is, is that's irrelevant, isn't it? Because you know so much about me from my position in the graph that no matter how private I turn those switches, you can make really accurate inferences about me. And therefore, you can either help or manipulate me depending on, on your bent. For example, several years ago, um, in the Near4j office, in the old Near4j development office in a rather rough part of London when we were uh, young and, and poor, um, the office next door were working for a polling organization and they happened to be using Near4j. And the lady that was running the project came and said, hey, we've nearly finished. Do you want to come and check it out? And we were like, yeah, this, this is cool, right? And she was a mathematician, so she kind of explained to us poor computer scientists in rather lay terms how the model worked. And we kind of faked that we understood, you know, that kind of like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, kind of thing. We didn't really understand the maths. Um, but she let me show you. And so she asked for a few details from me. And um, so she's like, okay, you're, you're male. I said, yeah, I'm male. And she said, how old are you? And I kind of, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She, how old? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of, yeah. Uh, a, 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 a gentleman never tells. But we, she aged me. Um, uh, and I was younger then, right? So it was even worse now. And she asked me for, for my postcode. So, so I gave her that. I said, what else do you need? She said, oh, no, that's enough. I'm like, really? My gender, a fraction of my postcode and my age. She said, yeah, yeah. You're married. You have one or two children. You read The Guardian or similar, and you draw, drive a Toyota Prius or similar. And she got this really quite long list of very boring facts. And I hadn't told her any of that, but it all, almost all, matched how boring I was. So literally, from my position in a graph, she was able to list me as a deeply uninteresting person. Like if that leaked to a neighboring dating site, for example, I'd, I'd be absolutely hosed, right? I, I'm going to get no interest. And of course, that's just kind of like a funny anecdote, right? Because it's like Jim is boring, the graph proves it. But I think at a more serious level, if you amplified that out, you could start to see things like Jim is susceptible to radical propaganda. Jim is susceptible to all these other things that could be harnessed for someone else's greater good. And the truth that we know is that given even a small fraction of information, the context that the graph or graphs provide actually allow people to learn more about us than we'd often like. And I think a lot of lay people don't understand that. Zooming out from that, I think we do need a set of ethics. So for those of us that work in graph theory, for those of us that are graph data scientists, there is, there is something that needs to emerge you know, uh, uh, from the depths of, of, of graph theory around, use, around ethical uses, particularly of social graphs, which doesn't really exist today. Errol? I was just thinking that that's hard to follow. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, not even close as good uh, anecdote, but uh, let, let me give it a try at least. I mean, my background is, uh, I didn't tell that before, but I come from banking as well. And I worked a lot with anti-money laundering setups and, and fraud detections. Uh, when you talk about graphs, these things can turn dark uh, relatively quickly. Uh, when you look on some of the social and ethical impl implications. Uh, but I mean, there are ways also to ensure that you can use these things for good. Uh, and I think that's what we need to, to focus quite a lot more. We, of course, need to focus on the ethical things. And I mean, that's the purpose of my question a bit later. But I think if we focus on kind of the, the implications of using them for good, for instance, looking on um, criminal social networks or looking at how money flows through banking systems, uh, laundered money, how can you detect those things? And I think I want to pick up something you mentioned, Jim, around the context. One thing I realized when I was working for a large telco is if you can put the graphs in a larger context, you can start understanding more. So it's about expanding the, the graphs as well. You might start on one topic. Uh, for instance, when I was working for that telco, we started looking on the phone calls you're making. 
to and out and how they were going in the network. And then we started connecting them to another context. For instance, could we end on demographic data? And you started seeing how that network grow and grow and the more insights you were getting. So, so the question around how you can work with graphs in my perspective is what context can you put it into? Because as we know, in, in all other machine learning uh, fields as well, it's about the data and the context you put it into. So what we have to make sure and really work on is what context we want to put our, our theories into and what type of problems should we use and what data shouldn't be used as well. But I think uh, when it comes to your question on kind of how we use these graph things, I, I think it, it depends. And it depends on, first of all, the questions we want to ask. So what is the problem we're using and the data we have access to? So that depends so much where you are. For instance, if you are at Facebook, you'll have a, a completely different set of graphs that you can connect uh, compared to when you are in banking. And the big question in my mind is always, when will we start connecting these worlds? When will we start bridging? And when will we see data more and more as a commodity? Because I don't think it's a, 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 an if, it's a, a when. And that's when we'll start having some, some major ethical issues. Can I add to that a little follow-on? Um, you know, so Errol was talking about the positive uses of uh, graphs and that immediately brought to mind with me uh, bot detection on Twitter and we know how influential bots have been. But, but the one that really jumped out in my mind, uh, one of my neighbors and friends is a contact tracer for COVID. And I was asking her, okay, so what do you do with this? How, how does this job work? And she said, well, we get somebody who tests positive and I call them and I talk to them and I ask them where they've been in the past X number of days, who they've associated with, you know, who they've had close contacts with. And I said, okay, so how do you record that information? And she showed me, well, I've got this notepad right here. I said, okay, you've got this notepad, great, then what? And she says, well, then I enter this all into an Excel spreadsheet. So I have one column with the, the positive tests and I've got one column with, here's the close contacts that they've had on which dates. I've got another column with the places where they've been on which dates. And I said, okay, cool, then what? She says, well, then I send that to my supervisor. I said, okay, what does the supervisor do then? And she said, well, then the supervisor goes through and looks at all these columns and tries to come up with patterns. And I said, well, how do they do that? And it's all very manual. And I thought, geez, what a perfect place for a graph, you know, for contact tracing. And maybe some places are doing that. I live in a small town, maybe some of the larger towns with better funding are able to do that. But then I thought, well, what if you could do a graph on your cell phone? Okay, so I've got my cell phone here and you know, we've got contact tracing apps on the cell phone. So, so I'm sure some places are doing this, but it's perhaps not as pervasive as we would like that we see, we on this call see the benefit and the opportunity here of doing contract tracing with COVID. And I don't think the rest of the world sees that. So I see that as a really big opportunity to contribute to overall societal good through these same types of math. Actually, I think the, the largest scale I, I think I'm aware of is, is Vietnam who are using graphs to do their COVID mm -hmm. tracing and compared to certainly uh, you know the UK and perhaps, perhaps the US and unfortunately now Sweden, um, they're doing a lot better. Um, so uh, it just shows, I think, a, a good choice of tech and a, and a good set of government policies can really boost the, the health of the population. That's right. When do you feel like your question has been answered? Have you got any follow-up questions to that? Yeah, I feel like both me and Eros 
question being answered. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, okay. Well, I tell you what, we will follow up because to continue the discussion around um, potential harmful implications, Errol did send me the question. Um, is uh, Errol's question: What are the potential harmful implications? implications of mining social networks and what steps can we take to ensure ethical applications i think we've touched on this slightly but i do think we can go a bit deeper um who would like to kick things uh, oh, in fact errol could you give some context behind your question <laughs> and i think i mean given where we are in the world today uh the type of documentary is now available on, on certain channels uh, and also given my background, uh, having seen firsthand what you actually can do with the data, uh, working both from kind of an anti-terrorist uh, setup and then working in, with uh, uh, large network providers, uh, understanding that data is a weapon uh, at the hands of the wrong people. And I think we need to take that seriously. So I would love to hear more on on your, uh, your own thinking around this and social network mining. And also I think more importantly, what are the steps we can take as people in this call, but then as a society to prevent uh, the, the harmful implications? Um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I mean, it's a question, I think it's a question also in general, not only for social network analysis, but also it's a, in general to like for AI projects and also projects related to individuals. Mining social network, I think it's 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 an extreme because in uh, in the sense that it involves the individual information, and we need to be aware uh, from the very beginning about the possibility of the ethical issues. Yeah, I really liked Jim's example of um, being a quote unquote boring guy, and while I might disagree with that self assessment. Um, <laughs> the idea of being able to profile somebody based on their graph and who's around them, I think, opens up a lot of possibilities for some pretty bad actors to get in there and um, radicalize people. So if I'm some sort of organization, you know, who's up to no good, how do I find more members? How do I find members who might be skilled in certain areas? Like maybe I need a member who's got a certain background to help out whatever my goals might be. You know, maybe maybe Jim drives a Prius and I want all Prii to suffer some ill fate. I don't know if I can if I can determine that Jim knows a lot about the Prius. You know, maybe Jim's got a technical background in Prii because I I assume Prii is the plural of Prius. And yes, I used to own one, but but I still never figured out the, the plural. But maybe maybe I see that Jim um, has some sort of technical background and could hack the Prius or something like this. You know, I think what it's 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 about aggregating all this information. It's not just Jim and the graph and who Jim knows, but it's also you, as you start adding more and more context to the graph, the graph starts getting really interesting. Um, you know, where does Jim work? What are Jim's hobbies? Um, how I'm going to put this in quotes, how boring is Jim's life? Or maybe Jim's life is is sad. And what type of things can I offer to Jim to get him to join my network of bad actors? So sorry, Jim, you made a great example. No, I mean, look, I have the data that proves that I am very boring. So I don't want to contradict <laughs> you live in, in a podcast. But, you know, I, I, it, it, it's basically proof. Um, look, uh, as, as the token boring person, the token boring middle-aged white guy, I, I'll own that. Um, 
I, I think that the, what we've talked about here very much is about bad actors doing bad things. And I think, you know, graphs are a very powerful weapon. If you're a bad actor, you get a graph, it's going to serve you well. The flip side is, though, that the good folks can use graphs for good. And uh, when I, you know, and, and, and you can see the bad folks trying to defend themselves from it now. So when I look at the activities of folks like the ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, they're really good at doing graph analyses to find out who the bad actors are, typically in, in financial circles. So, Errol, you, you've worked in banks before, you know, I, I really wish that banks had compliance mechanisms that were based on graphs because it would save them from being embarrassed by these journalists, right? And when these journalists do the graph analyses, Panama Papers sticks in my mind, but more recently the FinCEN files and so on. In the Panama Papers, um, the Prime Minister of Iceland was boldly on TV saying, yeah, I'm clean, nothing to do with me. But actually through the graph, they found his wife, who used to be called a different name when she was his girlfriend, who lived at a house where, oh, surprise, surprise, there's the Prime Minister of Iceland living. And the interview with him was wonderful because he's so confident, you know, how politicians are, right? It's like they're groomed for confidence. And then, well, actually, Prime Minister, we have proof that you are actually dodging your taxes. And it's just like, bam, the whole you know, demeanour of the interview changes and then he's gone. Uh, here in the UK, the politicians have more of a brass neck. We found uh, former uh, Prime Minister David Cameron's father uh, in, the, in the Panama Papers. Now, no, of course, uh, not saying that any, anything has been done wrongly. You can have offshore affairs for, for all manner of good reasons, but you can also have uh, offshore accounts for all manner of bad reasons. And given that uh, the Prime Minister at the time was preaching that we all became good, it was a little bit kind of awkward for him. So I do think that we, you know, that, that graphs can be a weapon, but weapons can be something we can use to fight for, for progress, right? It doesn't have to be something that we cede to, to the bad actors. And I think we as good actors can use similar technology to try and root out uh, uh, these kind of uh, ne'er-do-wells from our society and stop them leeching from us, which would be great. Does, um, Errol, does that answer your question? I mean, have we have we got some steps to ensure ethical applications there? I do think so. I do think as a, a worried soul uh, in this uh, crazy times, I always uh, want to see more. And I think uh, what we need to ensure is, uh, I mean, what I'm picking up from this dialogue is that we need to ensure that these weapons, as we now refer to them as, and uh, math is a superpower these days, uh, needs to be, uh, it needs to be put to good use. And I also think that we need to, to fight towards the people that are using it wrongfully, and we need to support that community that actually are fighting that. Uh, but also, we, we need to ensure, and I think the banking example is a very good one, we need to ensure compliance functions actually utilize the best technologies and tools available. Uh, both for internal compliance and external compliance. And I think the work we still need to do, uh, and I guess you're doing it quite a lot from Neo4j's side, uh, is uh, make sure that these people and these companies get access to the right tool and training. Okay, fantastic. Um, final potentially questions, because Claire did get slightly greedy and send me two. Um, so we do have, uh, what, bit of time left so let's go for two anyway so claire's first question um is where is the future of social network analysis as we start bringing machine learning and ai into the fold yeah give some context behind the question claire please right um so we're starting to see more data scientists taking this math opportunity 
and using it. And there's, there is a certain amount of work that's happening in data science and machine learning around graphs, not as much as I would like to see. I think there's many opportunities here. And so the question that I have is about, you have data scientists who look at graphs in a certain way or look at data in a certain way. And you know these machine learning engineers, these AI folks, you know, everything's about taking a bit of data and making it into a model. So as we, as we move forward in social network analysis, where do you see the opportunities here for ML and AI? Um, Jim first. So of course, I'm, I'm from an analytic tradition being a database vendor. So I think that we actually get quite a lot of benefit just from doing daft things in the database, like saying, hey, database, close some triangles for me and uh, let's see if we can make some friends in this graph. But of course, looking at the, the, all, you, all your fancy ML work that you folks are doing, it's quite exciting, isn't it? And I do think that you know, algorithmically, we're, we're already making some serious strides forward. You know, 2014, we all thought like deep walk was astounding, right? And then so many improvements have been made on that now. So we are now doing you know, phenomenal node embeddings algorithms with like FastRP. And indeed, I, I recently saw something some of my team did that, that's better than FastRP for node embeddings. And uh, that might be making its way into your software soon, Claire, by the way. So that's, that's a little uh, heads up. So I think there are, there's a few things that are, are going on. We're, we are learning how better to fuse the kind of analytical tradition from graphs with the machine learning tradition, if that could be called a thing, uh, given it's so new and shiny, uh, and how to take advantage of both. Uh, we are also learning uh, how to improve those algorithms, so the kind of bits that join together, like you know, the node embedding algorithm. So we're going to get better models. Uh, I don't know uh, when I zoom out where this is going to go because it's, it's not my field of expertise, but it feels like uh, the, you other folks, you actual data science folks, uh, you graph data scientists on the call, you know more about that. So I'll, I'll gracefully hand over. Very gracefully. Um, what's your thoughts, Errol? Yeah, I, I wish I could say I was uh, the brilliant mathematician in this gang as well. Uh, I mean, my, my background is more engineering and, and finance. So I'm more of a, I, I use the applications of graphs. Um, and I mean, I, I started out a few years ago and I, I started seeing the benefits of utilizing them. Uh, and then for some reason, in my opinion, they were becoming hot. Uh, and, and it took me a while to actually get back to that. And I think actually, uh, Claire, your presentation that you did at a summit once uh, inspired me to go back and start looking at graphs again and, and starting to realize that there's so many things we can do with graphs. Uh, but what I do see is I would like to see, at least at the baseline level, more commoditization uh, of the things that we are doing. I do think from the machine learning perspective, there's been quite a lot of work on packaging and making it available for people that are not good on the technical implementation side of things. What I do want to see in closing a gap is making it more accessible for data scientists to utilize, but also working on how do we implement it and what are the real use cases for using it. Because what I tend to see over and over again are data scientists exploring different tools and techniques that are not proven and doesn't provide value. So they go down a rabbit hole uh, of very exploratory research which doesn't yield anything. And me coming from the, the business side, which is very focused on producing value, have a hard time motivating my data scientists and, and my engineering teams to go down a path which is unexplored. I do allow it to a certain degree, but after two years and nothing has been produced, then at some point you have to pull the plug. So what I want to see is more commoditization uh, of, machine, uh, of um, machine learning algorithms and graph algorithms, uh, and more clear use cases for us to implement, to shorter path to value. 
because my thinking is then that will accelerate the usage of more advanced technique because you need to be able to walk before you start running. And if we start looking where we're going, uh, I don't know which cool techniques that will come, but I know most of us are still uh, trying to learn how to walk with these tools. When? Yeah, I think that the uh, social network analysis and the machine learning, they actually compensate each other. They, they do similar things, but through different way. So by my experience, I did the spammer detection so, because the, the the spammers they're they're smart. They're not they're not uh, they're not work work by themselves. They're grouped together, and then they 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 spam on the social network, like comment, do comments and stuff like that. So it's kind of quite easy for them to fake their individual behavior, but it's really really hard for them to fake the structural behavior. So we we uh, we tried to use the social network to uh, the, the community detection the modularization to detect the spammer community. It's quite successful. It's quite easy to see. Okay, those guys they gather together. You can very easy to see on a structural level, and this is one thing I think is very interesting. And another thing we did, I so one of the. Uh, one of the issues that social network uh, met is how to bring the interesting content to our user. So uh, it, the easy solution is we build a recommendation. <laughs> we build a recommendation engine and then push the, the whenever the recommendation engine thinks suitable for that user. Uh, but but we, we build two different ones, but it, it's user, user do not like, like them as we expected. And then we and then I tried to do it in a different way. So I recently I did an experiment on this issue by using social network analysis. And based on the result of the experiment, it performed really, really good. The user really liked the content uh, we generate, uh, we, we recommend through their social network. It's kind of uh, quite amazing to see that, okay, how they're targeting the same problem in different way. And where, where, when, when one doesn't work, maybe the other one work. Well, I'd love to hear more about that. Where, where they, what was the method that they didn't like it versus what, with the, what was the method that they did like in the recommendation engine? That's fascinating. Okay. Oh yeah, the recommendation. We build a recommendation engine, so uh, we, so we want to personalize. Uh, we want to give users more personalized in uh, the, the content. And so we basically uh, we basically tracking their their the the um, the the cat so the, the user upload their catches onto our app. So we basically track all the catches they liked in the in the in the, in the past, and then we try to predict uh, for predict which new uh, catches they were like. So in this way, we build the um, we build the the recommendation engine, but. It turned out the user do, do, do not really like those content. So we didn't see a huge increase on likes on those content that we recommend to them. But instead, we try to find those interesting um, of top users in our network and uh, to try to generate content from there. And then we find a huge increase of likes that, that our user clicked. So I was okay. That that's interesting. Machine learning couldn't solve this problem, but social network can solve this problem. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Do you feel that question's been answered, Claire? Have you got any follow-up questions on that? Uh, 
Oh, I, I, yeah, I think it's been answered great. I could probably engage these people in, you know, days worth of conversation on this. It's so cool. Fantastic. So you did have a follow-up question as well, uh, Claire, on what are the big hurdles today in social network analysis? Um, I'm not technical enough to know if that's already been answered, but if it hasn't, give some context around that. Yeah, so um, when I came up with that question, you know, we, we've seen a lot of benefit to social network analysis. Um, but there's also, in, in my very humble opinion, there's also a lot of growth opportunity here. But what's, what, what are the things that are, what are the blockers? What, what do we need to see happen in social network analysis to take it, you know, from here to here? Does anyone want to pick up this question? Jim? Yeah, I, I feel like that's directly aimed at me because I provide the, the kind of uh, equipment to do this processing. And, and the, look, uh, I, I think we need to get better at it, right? I mean, graph databases and, and graph processing is, is relatively new, uh, unless you happen to, you know, work for one of the huge internet companies like Claire does. Uh, we, we don't all have, um, you know, tenured folks that have been doing this. And so, you know, we, we, we kind of riffed a little bit on this theme earlier, but this notion of commoditization. I think it's um, we need to commoditize kind of graph storage, graph query, graph processing, and it hasn't gotten there yet, right? Graphs are still kind of, uh, at least for me as a systems person, they're still really exciting and new. I'm, I'm only a decade into my journey with graphs, and everything still feels quite new and shiny. I think we need to advance the state of the art in the kind of boring infrastructure um, so that it doesn't feel new and shiny. And at that point, effectively, we've, we've kind of succeeded because then the folks that are doing real kind of, uh, as Errol said, the kind of business value driven stuff don't have to be excited about using the machinery. They can just tackle large challenging data problems. I think one of the things that is, you know, I love graphs. I, you know, I live, live and breathe graphs, cut me, I bleed graphs. Um, but one of the things that's really frustrating about them is, is that um, they're squiggly um, and squiggly things are really hard to get locality benefits from, which means that processing them becomes like rather difficult. And I think we also need to look at ways uh, down at the systems level, which actually also applies up in the analytics level, around partitioning graphs and so on in a myriad of ways so that we can get mechanical sympathy from the systems we're processing them on in the same way that we would if we were uh, segmenting a graph based on user preferences or you know, country of origin and that kind of thing. Uh, that goes kind of techniques that we're used to in the analytic uh, world. We need to push down the stack so that we can get better performance and ultimately uh, tackle larger, more interesting data sets at scale than we do today. Errol? Well said. <laughs> I think that's uh, straight to the point. Uh, I think uh, you need tools at your disposal and you know, need to know how to use them. Uh, I think we're still in the exploratory era, and I think many of us has, has uh, not played around, but we, we used it for, for good things. Um, I mean, I still think it's hard uh, to do. I mean, I, I remember I was just interested in, in Bitcoins when it was blowing up, so I stored all the transactions since then, Open Ledger, and, and tried to analyze that. But I, I started realizing, doing that on my private account, that's uh, a relatively expensive experience. Uh, given the, the amount of Bitcoins that actually fl fly around in the world. Uh, so it needs to be easier to do these sort of things. Uh, and uh, back to the point of commoditization, uh, that's it. And I think we, we are getting there, but uh, make the tools easier to access and make the training even, even easier to understand. Uh, at some point, we need to make Excel for graphs as well. 
so even people that don't understand it can do easy, easy calculation and get the benefits really fast. One. Yeah, I, I think one of the big hurdles for me is uh, the scale of the network. <laughs> Yeah, the size of the network, yeah, it's the same thing as in machine learning. So I have, uh, I have built, I have proposed a influencer identification algorithm, which which is to improve the performance of the K shell algorithm, and it takes a couple of days to just run on on a network. It's like a hundred hundred uh, a couple of hundred thousand nodes. So yeah, we I don't I don't want to run that algorithm on the fish brain network. <laughs> it's just not possible. And another another one I think that it could be the complexity of, of the algorithm itself. Because the, a lot of the, the, the algorithm, like the, the complexity is ON square or something like that. So in academia, we care a lot about uh, accuracy. We want the, the algorithm algorithm to be more accurate. To, to, to give us the, the, the better result. But in industry, the efficiency is crucial. So I remember Mark Newman, was, uh, Mark Newman who, uh, he, who proposed the most classic community detection algorithm mentioned that. So the, the first um, uh, community detection uh, algorithm he made, which is not, uh, it's not really in use, mostly due to the complexity of the algorithm. algorithm. So, like for example, between us, is a, when I do the uh, the, the analysis uh, of the network, I, I try to avoid between us. It's it's a really good prop. Uh, it's a really good index, but it just takes so much time to run. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my understanding. <laughs> so, if I can chime in here with one of my concerns about this. Um, Gartner every year releases their hype cycles, and they're always I, I'm never really sure how they derive them, but they're always interesting. And for 2020, one of the things, you know, so these things, if, um, you know, you, you get this uh, curve that comes up and then it drops back down and then it slowly comes up again. And what they call, you have the technology kickoff and it goes to this thing that they call the peak of heighted inflation. And then everybody was like, okay, you know, hitting on Errol's point of, oh, geez, what do I do with this thing? You know, this is so researchy. It's not, I don't see any application. And so then it falls off precipitously, this hype. Um, and if it can't get out of this trough, it's dead. Okay, this is the trough of disillusionment. And then somebody comes up with something. And, you know, it's not like a killer app or something like this. It's just something useful. And few people come out of these something usefuls, you know, few things. And then you start getting more and more industry adoption of it. And if you look at the 2020 hype cycle, knowledge graphs, that was the one graph thing that I'd really seen on it. Knowledge graphs are almost at this peak of disillusionment. So, you know, okay, these, these could be very beneficial things, but until they start panning into something useful, we're gonna get stuck in this trough. And how to get out of it, you know? How do we create something that, that's not, you know, explosively useful, but just something that's that brings people on board that's mildly useful what is that thing and i can't answer that i don't know but i, I think we have to be aware that it's coming claire chipping in with a third question anyone <laughs> <laughs> um has anyone got any kind of final comments on uh, the topic today or yeah 
I, I can just comment on uh, something you said when there on kind of the, the processing time. I mean, it feels like we are where we were 10, 15 years ago with machine learning, uh, where you were confined to one single machine, uh, where the processing time was the problem. And then somebody solved it in a good way and made it more accessible for people. And I think uh, th there are solutions for this, but it's not easily accessible today. And we need to solve the computational problem so we get down the, the time uh, problem as well. Yeah, um, true. Uh, sorry. Go on, when, sorry. <laughs> yeah, true. Like, uh... It's uh, uh, back to the days I was doing uh, working with machine learning. So we use the UCI, the machine learning repository. It's like uh, the one of the one of the data set that we use like 150, <laughs> 150 rows and four columns. That's the data we were using. But you, if we look at today, it's like a megabyte, megabyte data. Yeah, it's a totally different world. Maybe the computational resource, when we get more computational resource, our computational power become much better than today, maybe those problems will no longer exist. Just like machine learning today. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Um, thank you, everyone. That was incredible. I wrote down a few things to kind of sum up this conversation and sum up actually you individuals. All very polite, incredibly intelligent, absolutely fascinating. And Jim, I'll tell you that there's no one on this uh, panel that's boring. I promise you that. It's an absolutely fascinating topic. And I believe you could probably discuss this for hours, uh, but we tried to get in about 52 minutes today. So once again, thank you take, for taking your personal time and doing this.